Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is health and science journalist Gary Tobbs. Tobbs is a former staff writer for Discover Magazine and a correspondent for the journal Science. His writing has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and Esquire, as well as being included in the Best American Science Writing Anthology. Tobbs has received the three Science and Society Journalism Awards from the National Association of Science Writers and a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Investigator Award in Health Policy Research. He is the co-founder of the Nutrition Science Initiative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to funding and facilitating nutrition research capable of resolving key controversies in the field. And Gary Tobbs is also the author of the books, Why We Get Fat and Good Calories, Bad Calories, and returns to Health Watch today to talk about his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. The New York Times food writer Mark Bittman says no one in this country has worked harder on or better understood the role of sugar in our diet than Gary Tobbs. As a journalist, an investigator, a scientist, and an advocate, he is without peer. Author Gretchen Rubin calls the case against sugar a riveting history of ideas, a clear analysis of evidence, and an utterly persuasive argument that sugar is the new tobacco. And Publishers Weekly says, readers will hate to love this book since it will cause them to thoroughly rethink the place of sugar in their diets. Welcome back to Health Watch, Gary Tobbs. Well, thanks for having me. Well, perhaps the central assertion of the case against sugar is that you believe sugar is behind the epidemic of obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease in the United States, that diabetes would be as rare a disease without refined sugar as lung cancer is without cigarettes. So tell us a little bit about why you think these diseases in particular are can in large part be traced back to the rise in the consumption of refined sugars. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, the... Um... Yeah, uh, yeah. One, the argument I make in this book is that that sugar should be the prime suspect for these diseases. That's uh, even the title, the case against sugar, has this sort of legal implication. Um, when you go back in history, you find that we have these uh, epidemics of obesity and diabetes. Effectively, every population around the world that experiences uh, a transition from whatever their traditional diet is to uh, Western diets and lifestyles. So it doesn't matter what the population is, whether Southeast Asians or, you know, eating mostly uh, uh, rice or or Inuits living on caribou and seal meat or Maasai living on the blood, uh, you know, milk and and meat that they, from the cattle they herd or agrarian populations when they transition to Western diets and lifestyles. Uh, pretty quickly thereafter, you see these epidemics of obesity and diabetes. And in the U.S., this begins <clears throat> with the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution in the second half of the 19th, sort of post-Civil War years. You see physicians start commenting on this uh, this transition from diabetes being a disease they might see once every five or ten years in their practice to being a disease that's showing up in ever greater numbers. And, and whenever these population, whenever these epidemics begin, you see researchers suggesting that the obvious suspect is sugar. And um, as early as 1924, the uh, 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 director of public health in the city of New York was arguing, saying that 
they'd seen uh, increases in diabetes mortality of 15-fold in many American cities since the Civil War, and clearly sugar was the prime suspect. And as you follow this through historically, as I did in the book, um, you see the reasons why sugar gets rejected by authorities or influential physicians is usually because they don't understand some very fundamental, like the simplest biochemistry about how sugar is different than other um, other uh, uh, carbohydrates that, that we get from consuming grains or starches. And the latest evidence in the past 20, 30 years clearly links uh, the metabolism of sugar in uh, the liver. The sugar is, is a compound of uh, glucose and fructose, two simple carbs, and the metabolism of fructose. The fructose is metabolized in the liver, and when it's metabolized at, in effect, high doses, it's converted into fat. And there's a condition called insulin resistance, which is a fundamental defect in type 2 diabetes that's linked to fat accumulation in the liver. So there are all these sort of uh, epidemiologic uh, kind of population-wide arguments pointing at sugar, and then when you actually get down to the physiology of how we metabolize sugar, it also uh, connects sugar to diabetes uh, more strongly than any other uh, food we eat. So that's, that's the general argument. It was one of the interesting things in looking at the rise in diabetes in the, in the mid-19th century onward and then the rise in some of these foods is you talk a little bit about uh, when, we, when cereal ends up showing up on the scene or ice cream or fruit juice and why they, they, they appear uh, and how we think of these things as like staples in our, in our diet um, going back generations. But maybe not that many generations. Can, can you talk about some of those examples of, of when some of these things enter the scene and, and start to dominate our diet when they didn't before? Yeah, well, this is, if we go back, uh, say, to the early 19th century, um, just as the Industrial Revolution was kicking off, in this country we consumed about as the sugar content of a can of Coca-Cola about once a week. Um, and so when people, per, you would purchase, you know, sugar would be carried in general stores in large barrels, and people would buy it by the pound, and it was expensive. And candy, ice cream, chocolate, sodas, fruit juice, none of that really existed back then. And then with the Industrial Revolution, you see that the candy, uh, chocolate, and ice cream industries all kick up in the 1840s. And it's not until the 1870s that we have a soft drink industry. And even then, if you wanted to get a, a soda pop, you went to the, 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 the drugstore and the, the, there was a soda fountain where you, would, you could you know, buy your, your Coca-Colas or your Pepsis or your Dr. Peppers, which all started around the 1870s, 1880s. And then um, it's not until the 1930s that we have refrigerators and freezers become inexpensive enough that you can start buying these <clears throat> excuse me buying these beverages in health in 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 uh, quantity and keeping them cold at home um fruit juices appear uh in the late 18 uh, late 1930s and begin to become popular uh post world war 2 and then it's not until the 19 late 1940s and 1950s that sugar sweetened cereals uh finally are produced uh on mass so the cereal industry was sort of was indeed born from the health food industry and uh, sanitariums for the 
the wealthy dyspeptics in the late 19th century run by Kellogg's and Post, and so they were very um, anti-sugar until they finally gave in, in effect, in the 1950s to market demands and started producing sugar uh, sweetened cereals. So it's not until the 1960s, really, in this country that we find a situation in which suddenly, instead of getting, you know, uh, 25 grams of sugar per week, you're now getting 25 grams of sugar in effect every two hours throughout the day. Um, and children are getting it, you know, as a kind of from their breakfast onward as uh, an expected and natural aspect of their diet, something that we think that we all deserve and can easily tolerate. And then this is exacerbated in the 1960s when we focus on this idea that dietary fats the cause of heart disease. And with that sort of public health obsession that I've discussed in my previous books, by the 1980s, you've got this public health uh, guidelines uh, first spread by the National Institutes of Health and the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the National Academy of Science and the Surgeon Generals, all aimed at getting us to eat low-fat diets and sort of defining low-fat diets as the essence of a healthy diet. And with that focus, the idea that sugar is anything but benign becomes a sort of unintended consequence. So suddenly you have the food industry actually being told by the Centers of Disease Control that we want you to produce low-fat food products. And in the process of doing that, when you remove the fat from sort of an iconic example is yogurt, you end up with uh, low-fat yogurts, and they're kind of insipid food-like substances, as Michael Pollan would call them. So in order to make them tasty, you add back sugar, now in the form of high-fructose corn syrup. And now you've got these sort of heart-healthy foods that we, again, consume all day long that are a little reduced in fat or even completely reduced in fat, but then they replace the fat with sugar. And with this, we see this sort of slow, steady increase in diabetes prevalence such that, you know, in the 1920s, maybe one in three to 500 Americans were being diagnosed with diabetes, and today that number's one in 11. So you mentioned at the top of the program, Gary, that um, there's a lack of a basic knowledge of biochemistry in, in a lot of the people making food policy in the United States. And one of the lacks of, of knowledge is, is around um, the ways different sugars, is, sugars are metabolized. And you mentioned that sugar, sucrose, table, sh table sugar, is made up of a glucose molecule and a fructose molecule. What are the implications of how those are metabolized differently in terms of um, how we should make decisions around our food? Well, and this is part of the fascinating aspect of this history. So you go back to again, 1924 when uh, the New York City Public Health Commissioner Haven Emerson was arguing that sugar should be the primary cause of, should be, you know, was clearly the prime suspect in this diabetes epidemic they were beginning to, um, to witness. And uh, Elliot Jocelyn, who was the, becoming the sort of god of diabetes uh, in the United States. He had a clinic in Boston, a very uh, wonderful physician, well-meaning uh, doctor who uh, published all the, uh, the sort of seminal diabetes textbook. Actually, even today, still the 
the seminal textbook in, in diabetes medicine is Jocelyn's Diabetes Mellitus. And <clears throat> Jocelyn uh, argued against this idea that it was sugar because he said, look, the Japanese eat these, you know, rice-rich diets, and they have very low diabetes rates. And he just assumed that, you know, rice is a carbohydrate, sugar is a carbohydrate, the two are identical. Um, and even when I was doing my research for my first book as late as 10 years ago, many of the authorities who were commenting on sugar or studying sugar didn't actually know that what they, what they say, for instance, if they were studying fructose, which is half of a sugar molecule, they thought that they were studying the uh, high fructose corn syrup, which is a sugar-like syrup that happens to be 45% glucose and 55% fructose. And so I would often, in, in the course of doing my research, I would have to inform them that what they were studying was actually relevant to sugar as well as high fructose corn syrup. It was a, kind of a bizarre situation for a, a journalist to be in. So when we consume carbs, carbohydrates in general, so uh, starchy vegetables like potatoes or grains, uh, they break down upon uh, digestion into glucose alone. The glucose gets into our bloodstream and it raises blood sugar. So blood sugar is often, you know, your physician might refer to it as blood glucose because that's <clears throat> uh, almost exclusively glucose. And the glucose is metabolized by virtually every cell in our bodies. Um, the fructose again, is half of table sugar, half of cane or beet sugar, and 45% of high fructose corn syrup, uh, goes through the portal vein and, and is metabolized by our liver. And so the argument is, you know, we would have gotten fructose throughout human evolution because, fruc well, fructose is, what is the sweetest of the carbohydrates, and that's what makes sugar sweet. And it's also in fruit, and that's what makes fruit sweet. It's also found in vegetables, but in much, much lower doses so and when you consume green vegetables or you consume fruit it's bound up with fiber which slows down the digestion of what's a much lower dose but when we're consuming sugar and particularly when we're drinking sugary beverages you get that fructose in effect at much higher doses and then it's digested and absorbed much much more quickly and dumped onto our liver in a way that you know, the argument is our livers just never evolved to handle. So the fructose, when metabolized in the liver, while the glucose is simultaneously being metabolized uh, by other cells and we're secreting insulin to deal with the glucose, and the fructose is converted under these circumstances into fat, triglycerides technically, and there's a lot of evidence, it's not unambiguous, but a lot of evidence implicating this uh, accumulation of fat in the liver with this condition called insulin resistance. So to understand what's actually very simple biochemistry and how it's metabolized, again, all sort of points the finger at sugar as the prime suspect. One of the problems which I discuss in the book is that it's, it's exceedingly difficult to do the research necessary to nail this case down, you know, to the levels we would need if this was a court of law, you know, beyond reasonable, guilty beyond reasonable doubt. But you can paint a pretty uh, compelling portrait that we should consider it guilty um, in, you know, 
considering what's happened to our society and the fact that we do have to make uh, decisions about how to fix these out-of-control epidemics of obesity and diabetes. In case you just tuned in, we're talking to health and science journalist Gary Tobbs about his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. Um, in, in several of your books, Gary, you've you've interrogated the still commonly held wisdom in medicine that a calorie is a calorie and that if you're overweight, you need to eat less and exercise more. And this is another area that you assert that um, both scientists and, and uh, physicians aren't taking into account the ways uh, the biochemical differences are from eating uh, uh, some fat, some protein, or some carbohydrates. Um, can you talk a little bit more about why the calorie uh, equals a cal? Any calorie equals the calorie is something that benefits the sugar industry in particular, and then um, why eating uh, fat, which has more calories per gram could actually lead to less eating and less appetite? Yeah, this is um, one of these issues where I'm probably the most controversial. Um, and I would argue, uh, so I, I, if you go back, and again, my, my research as a journalist, I, I look at these subjects historically because I feel it's vitally important. If we believe something to be true, it's vitally important to know why we believe it and on what evidence. So you go back in history to find out where these belief systems come from. And in nutrition and obesity, I'm, I'm effectively the only one who's ever done that. And it's somewhat revelatory, uh, clearly. So since uh, the early 20th century, we've had this belief that obesity is an energy balance disorder. By that, it means it's fundamentally caused by taking in more calories than we consume. Uh, one way to um, one way to think about it is, uh, you know, it's just it's it's you know we eat too much is the simplest way to think about it, or we exercise too little. Um, the you know overeating is the cause of obesity, and it seems so simple and so obvious that it just has to be true. It's somehow dictated by the laws of physics, the laws of thermodynamics, um, which it just isn't in any sense of the imagination, but that's how we think about it. And when you get what, what I did in, in the research, going back to the history of this idea, you find out that, in effect, nutrition science from the 18, late 1860s, when modern nutrition science begins in, in Germany, uh, through the 1920s, the researchers are only really capable of measuring a few things about the foods we consume. So they could measure the vitamin and mineral content and study what happens um, in animals, particularly when you uh, feed them foods devoid of necessary vitamins and minerals, and they could measure the caloric content of the foods, um, how much energy they contained, and then they could measure using devices called calorimeters how much energy humans expended or uh, animals expended in their day-to-day -day life, and so they by virtue of only being able to measure the energy going in and the energy going out and the vitamins and minerals um, in the food, you come up with this concept that obesity is caused by this imbalance in energy. And the worst we could say about sugar in this context is that it's empty calories. So that's been the phrase that's been used for the past century. So it's empty of vitamins and minerals, and it carries calories, which means if you eat too much of it or you eat sugar on top of the other foods you eat, you could end up with this energy imbalance. 
Um, and this was the chapter about this in the sugar books called The Gift That Keeps on Giving, because this was absolutely vital to the survival of the sugar industry, this concept that there's, in effect, no such thing as fattening foods or reducing foods. It's not about what you eat. It's just about how much you eat. And so in the 1950s in particular, when the sugar uh, people, physicians, um, start implying that sugar is somehow uniquely fattening, there's a photo in the newspapers of President Eisenhower putting saccharin in his coffee, and his doctor has told him that if he doesn't want to get fat, he shouldn't eat sugar. And the sugar industry decides that this is just completely unacceptable, so they spend three-quarters of a million dollars on an advertising campaign to argue exactly what the nutrition and obesity researchers believe, which is obesity is caused by consuming too many calories, the only thing that matters is the caloric content of a food, and so there's nothing unique about sugar. You can get fat eating too much broccoli or too much quinoa or too much grass-fed you know, beef. doesn't matter. So the flip side of this is that all sort of major medical science pre-World War II or the, the, the best medical science pre-World War II was done in Germany and Austria, um, they invented uh, all the fields of research and pioneered them that are relevant, relevant to obesity, nu nutrition, metabolism, genetics, endocrinology, the study of hormones. And by the late 1930s, they had concluded that obesity, in effect, had to be a hormonal regulatory disorder, just like any other growth defect. So if you see somebody walking down the street who's you know, seven and a half feet tall, eight feet tall, you don't care about how much they eat and exercise. You only care about whether or not they're over-secreting growth hormone. Um, and it doesn't matter how much they weigh. If they weigh 300 pounds, 350 pounds, you don't care because you know it's a hormonal regulatory issue. And by the same token, if you see somebody walking down the street who weighs 300 pounds, you shouldn't care about how much they're eating and exercise. You should be worrying about what hormonal issues they're having that's driving them to accumulate this massive amount of excess fat. And the problem is, again, the German and Austrian thinking pretty much vanished with the Second World War. And post-war, um, the science of obesity is reinvented by these young American physicians and nutritionists who not only had very poor understanding of what science is and how it's done, but they had this very strong anti-German sentiment for good reason, and they had you know, no desire to read the German language literature, um, which had been, German had been the lingua franca of science up until the Second World War. Post-war, English becomes the lingua franca. So you lose this hormonal um, explanation for obesity, and as such, we just keep on thinking it's all about calories, it's all about calories, it's about how much you eat. And even as we begin to learn about which hormones and enzymes regulate fat accumulation in the human body, and it turns out to be fundamentally linked to this hormone insulin that's dysfunctional in diabetes, um, the belief by the 1960s in the U.S. and then elsewhere is that obesity is now an eating disorder, should be treated by behavioral methods to get people to eat less. And the sort of perfect storm of bad science and all this is as we start linking dietary fat incorrectly, as it turns out, to heart disease, 
obese and diabetic individuals have high rates of heart disease. So you think if fat causes heart disease, it must cause obesity and diabetes as well. And as such, this explanation comes up that fat has the densest calories, which it does. There's nine calories to a gram of fat compared to about four for protein and um, uh, carbohydrates. So even in this effort to get people to lose weight, they start, we start telling them to eat low-fat diets, assuming they'll somehow eat less. And this all coincides, again, with this explosion of obesity and diabetes. As, um, the last chapter to this thinking is that from the 1860s to the 1960s, roughly, the conventional wisdom was always that carbohydrates were fattening and sugar particularly. And as we learn in the 1960s, carbohydrates not just stimulate insulin secretion and sugar seems to cause this condition called insulin resistance, but that would all work to put, uh, get your fat tissue in effect to suck up calories and store excess calories as fat. So while the traditional thinking and the 1960s era science is all implicating sugar and carbohydrates as fattening. This idea that a calorie is a calorie and obesity is an energy balance problem and you just have to eat less, it's an eating disorder, combined with the dietary fat paradigm, pushes everyone to do the exact opposite of what the actual biology and physiology suggests you should do, which is if you don't want to get fat or you want to get lean, if you are fat, cut the carbohydrates out of the diet. Don't eat more of them. And there's also the suggestion that possibly increased appetite and decreased activity may be the result of eating too much sugar rather than the cause. Well, and that's the, the yeah, if you think of these issues as, again, uh, sort of hormonal regulatory issues. So the idea is your body is... Uh, being this hormonal imbalance, for lack of a better word, is driving your body, to, your fat cells, to suck up calories that you can no longer use for, to fuel your body. So instead of you know, eating 1,000 calories and using the 1,000 calories for fuel, you eat 1,000 calories, you only get to eat nine, use 900 for fuel, and the other 100 gets sucked into your fat cells and stored away. And that means now you've got a sort of caloric deficit that you would, you would have liked to have burned all 1,000, so you're either going to eat a little more or you're going to expend Gary, a little Gary un unfortunately, I have to jump in because we're almost out of time. I wish we had another half hour to continue talking. But do you have a website you could, you could quickly alert our listeners to? I do. It's uh, GaryTaubs.com. Uh, G-A-R-Y-T-A-U-B-E-S. Well, it was great having you back on the show today, Gary. Uh, thank you. It was great uh, great doing it. So we're talking today to health and science journalist Gary Taubes about his latest book, The Case Against Sugar. You can find it, the entire episode at kbo.fm slash healthwatch. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine. Next up is Madness Radio.